Welcome to the Rumpus Room. Everybody, how's it going out there? It's the boys from the Midwest back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. And let's hit them with the takeaway message of the day. So I've been uh, doing a bit of research and just reading a lot of books since we've been inside a lot. And I've been reading about the correlation between lying and depression and anxiety. So what that, and some of this is kind of my interpretation of the literature, but what people that lie a lot, you know, that's kind of like a, you ha- you tell one small lie and then it can start to amount. And then there's this huge kind of gap in terms of what you know to be true kind of in your, you know, deep down versus what is actually happening in reality. So you, you just kind of start building these walls up of what is, you know, what your perceived reaction is. So what do you think is going on? And then the world is continuing to reinforce the truth. So you're starting to build a huge resistance to the truth. And that's creating a lot of anxiety, depression that's felt. So that's something that I've been reading a lot about. And I think lying, there's a, you know, that's a very general term. But it's, you know, what is what is actually happening in reality? So that's been something I think I've been thinking a lot about because we talk a lot about anxiety, depression um, in terms of, you know, oh, how are you feeling? You know, I'm having a bad day. But I think there is something to be said about, you know, the control that you have over, you know, what you're telling the story you're telling yourself and then what's actually the world's telling you back. So that's something that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I definitely see. I think that's a huge contributing factor to one of the challenges millennials have faced when millennials have come like head headstrong headlong into the real world. Um, you know, I was we were golfing the other week, and I said millennials are known as like the snowflake generation. One of the guys in the foursome didn't really understand what that was. And when I started to explain that it's meaning like everybody thinks they're this unique, special little snowflake and the world really does not care. The world doesn't give a damn. And um, I think that's one of the big contributing factors to anxiety and depression is you're kind of telling yourself that like, you know, I'm this unique, special person and truly everybody is but I don't know where it got blown out of proportion for us because it certainly has been, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, that like encountering the real world that doesn't care about your snowflakeness, you know, your, your uniqueness doesn't, it only cares about really what it can get out of you. Um, Not that you're special. Like nobody gives a fuck, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I think, you know, and yeah, it's just a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. It is. And I think too, it's not a discredit to, I think, our, the parenting styles, but I think, you know, the whole, you are special movement definitely has the downsides. And I think we're dealing with that. Um, you know, like it sounds earlier generations were concerned more, you know, I'm going to be a contributing factor to society. I'm going to get a job at a company, stay there for 20 years. I'm going to buy a house, you know, this type of contributing towards the social good. And I could be interpreting it the wrong way, but uh, the me generation or the snowflake generation or whatever we want to call it. And I, I've had to deal with a lot of those things, you know, where you think like, I, you know, I deserve to get certain things because I, you know, because I've done all these things beforehand or, you know, whatever rationalization we get, you kind of get this, like, I deserve this, or everybody should think like I do, or, you know, just things like that when we're all a part of this massive population and we're a snowflake but the storm is massive <laughs> it's a big, big storm so yeah um your uniqueness is hard to fall i think on. and that's you know when people are starting to realize that like that message has been you know it's a tough pill to swallow. I think that's a huge contributing factor to people's internal dialogues in terms of that lying contributing to depression because you're having to kind of negotiate 
these ideas of yourself, your identity. I think mm-hmm. that's also a contributing factor to why it's been an explosion of these gender and identity conversations as they offer more certainty around the value that you can offer to society as opposed to you're just a worthless human being. You know, mm-hmm. if we ascribe to these gender groups or these identity groups, I think it gives people a sense of place, which is a good thing. Um, but I wanted to talk about that parenting thing because each generation of parents is going to do the best that they can. And then there's going to be the unintended consequences of those actions. And we're going to do the exact same thing to our kids and screw them up in tons of different ways. And I, I, I mean, every parent's goal is, is to try and not do that, but you know, it's obviously unforeseen consequences of trying to do the right thing while only having, you know, 1% of the information to make decisions off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you, that that's something that as we evolve and learn things and we get more information, we're going to try out different strategies because what we've seen work or what we've seen not work, we're going to try something new and it's, you know, some things don't work. Um, and so we're going to have to deal with those consequences, but we can only, all we can do is try our best with the information we have. And I think, you know, you're talking about, so one of the things that I was talking about with a couple people is this, this uh, thing about like, uh, I think a lot of women are trying to, you know, find their place in the world in terms of uh, working. And I think one of the things that we, I think, underappreciate big time is the, the ability to be a parent and a mother and a father. And I think we don't have a good reward system right now built out there. So there's a huge desire I can feel to contribute to society in the workplace. And I think, you know, when you think about what contributes to our human population, parenting is one of the most important things you can do. The most lasting impact is, can you raise a child that has the skills and tools to go out and contribute to the world in an even larger, you know, impact than you can? (laughs) So I think it's... It's an underappreciated quality, which um, the, the pressures on women today are insane. They're insane. I agree. It's so unfair. <laughs> it mean, really is. Uh, it really is. It's hard to see. I see the weight crushing my significant other at times, and it's it's so unfair to have this. expectation in every single regard of your life. It's just men don't really have that burden right now because we don't share the primary role of being a care provider. And, you know, I was, I was, since we're expecting, we've been having more of these conversations and it's like, sure, you know, I can wake up in the middle of the night, but um, most often, she's going to need to do it because the baby's going to be hungry. And like, I don't, I don't have breast milk. So like, not that I know of, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) not that we know of yet. Yeah. And it's like, I can try and carry some of the weight, but that's one of those things that like the, the huge burden is going to fall to her. And it's so unrealistic to be like, okay, you're going to shoulder this huge burden to rear a child in terms of being the provider and the nurturer, because like that's biologically what you're capable of. And I don't have that biological ability. Sure. We can have her pump and, you know, I can go and take the bottle out and whatever. And, but I promise you it's, it's not going to be a 50, 50 split. Of no. being, you, know. you can only pump so much and be prepared so much. Exactly. You know, so, um, it's just, uh, it's something that we are really feeling right now. And um, I can tell that it's weighing on my significant other. And that makes me very motivated to, you know, get my things in order from a financial work perspective. Harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Totally, man. I'm like, holy shit, I need to get this thing going. And um, that's great. Like I'm having, you know, some exciting successes with, um, with my business. And it's just, uh, it's very real. It's, it's very real. And you had said that, coworker of yours said when he 
started having kids, it was a real big motivator. And I'm certainly starting to feel some of that because um, the reality of planning for college. Uh, I mean, I don't think that when we send a kid through, and I could be wholly optimistic and, you know, I see our cousins just like sending kids to public school and they'll probably go to college and they'll probably walk the line. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. And in some regard, I'm kind of like, okay, there's no way that this college shit is going to be the way it is in 20 years because 20 years is a long a, time, but it's still an absolute racket. If you think the rate of which educational tuition increase has been going, it's like, okay, so it's going to cost a, uh, I don't know, $60,000 a year for to send your kid to school. There's no way this continues. It's no way. Well, what they were, so I've been fortunate that some of, you know, I, I've been uh, interacting with some pretty, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. Like, so they're in education and they're trying to, there's a whole team that's trying to figure out how do we do this differently? So they're talking about, you know, all of the changes the virus is bringing out. So do we do video, how do we optimize, you know, teachers so they can teach 30 kids instead of 10 kids and you can teach kids from different districts and you can, you know, have different specialists and think about like a math teacher who's really good at teaching a part of a subject. How do we get more people? So they're trying to figure all of that out because what they're noticing is the educational system is starting to change because younger teachers are like, screw this. I'm not going to pay this much for school and then get paid this amount of money when I can just go work for a company and get paid double that with, you know, not nearly the schooling requirement. And another thing that's coming out is technical schools. The people that go to technical schools are starting to make more money on average than a liberal arts degree. Oh, 100%. I mean, you can go into the trades and easily make over a hundred grand by working hard and, you know, doing a good job and you can build a business and be a millionaire really, you know, if you're, if you're good at marketing and you can figure out all your business stuff, but I mean, the, the, the liberal arts degree, the education system, it's, it's total shit. And, uh, in terms of my favorite people for the workforce, that's just not there. No. And I think one of the things that, you're seeing right now and i sent you that video of john mulaney has an absolutely hilarious bit on college and how you get an email like every year or two years then his bit is basically like you get an email you open it up from your or you get an email or a mail from your college and it says uh give us some money we want a (laughs) gift and only if it's money yeah. <laughs> so they like they basically just it's just hammering you and it's just beginning it's starting to be ridiculous this oh, all this and he proceeds to say that i already gave you a hundred thousand dollars and now you want more dollars yeah, and I, you haven't more. done anything for me for 10 years but now you want money for doing nothing what and i think a lot of that is a an undercurrent i think in people people that have gone through college and are just kind of like this is ridiculous um it's you know it's very odd. first of all what is it getting you you think of something that you invest one hundred twenty thousand dollars, and is that really getting you is that investment worth it you know just from a strictly financial standpoint i think the math is starting to get get uh sideways and it's like these types of things that are really going to cause some type of change um, and, well, and what I was talking about with them is like, as a company owner, sometimes hiring somebody from a college is, could be the wrong approach because they have this kind of warped set up sense of um, contribution. reality and contribution. The snowflake and, thing. Yeah. And then maybe you get some high school kid who you can literally just, you can mold them into more of what you want. So they don't have the four years of going backwards, which that's in my experience. I think I went backwards instead of forwards in college. And I, you know, there's a lot of different things. I went forwards in some and backwards in other, but that's something yeah. that's as we, you know, as an employer, what, how do you, how do you avoid that? Um, I think it'd be hard to hire a 18 year old kid, but <laughs> super hard. <laughs> but in terms of like 
building skills, you know, maybe yeah. you do two different 18 week courses on programming and you're more employable than 70% of people coming out of school these days. If you really hit a programming I mean, class, that's just such a hard really... skill that like everybody needs right now. It's like ridiculous. Like anybody can get a job as a programmer. It's not, it's not like the, the, every single job board that you look at programming is on it. It's, it's insane how much of a need it is. There's a need in our company that it's just and so like when I look at college, I'm like, okay, you teach the kid a couple of programming languages and that they they don't need that type of experience. I would say, why don't you go travel the world? Here's 30 grand, spend two years work and, you know, get your, you know, figure out some hard skills. Like you can do like finance was the hard skill that got me into the workforce. And I did really use that degree to Same. Mm-hmm. like actually do, you know, business planning and forecasting and valuation. That was the cornerstone of like how I started my career. Granted, I don't do that work in any capacity right now, like what I was trained for. It's affiliated, but it's certainly not what I do on a day-to-day. No, and one of the, I was lucky where a, kid, uh, a football player that was older than me that was really one of the smart, you know, footballers, uh, on our team, there was one kid who you could tell was really smart. And he pulled me aside and said, like, Sam, do not go into marketing. Do not go into communications. Do not go into general business. Go into finance. You will, your every door will be open for you. And that was 10 years ago, 20, 15 years ago. So uh, I'm sure that's changed now. It's probably programming and engineering. Um, but well, that I... was definitely a skill that you could use a little differently. I look at um, a very good friend of mine who got arguably it was it was known at the University of Minnesota as being the hardest major on campus. It was chemical engineering. It was a top three chemical engineering program in the country. They their job board was like Chevron and um, you know Tesla and NASA. I mean, they were sending kids to the tip tops of places if you're in the tip top of that program. And he tried to do it in three years and then beat himself up when he had to drop back and do it in four, um, which is still remarkable to even get through the chemical engineering program at the university. It's, it's, I mean, I've, I hardly saw him over the course of four years. I probably saw him like maybe three times a semester and he was one of my best friends. And he ended up going and working at a plant and it was a plant manager and plant supervisor. And then he hated that job. He worked the night shift. Overnight, yeah. Yep, he worked six to six, and it was just an absolute grind. And he lived in Buffalo, New York, and it was from far away from family and friends. And they said, you're going to do it for two years, and then we'll get you out of there. Well, they did. he did it for two years. His manager got switched. He got a new manager. And was, you know, on them like, hey, I've done my time. Get me a new job. Get me a new job. And they just dragged their feet. And he was just sick of it. And was like, all right, I'm going to quit. He quit, was unemployed for probably a year because manufacturing in the United States. What are you going to do? There's, I mean, there's not very much right now. So how many manufacturing facilities are there, especially in Minnesota, where there's really not that hub? So he just had a really difficult time. I'm very happy that he ended up getting a job and, you know, is in a much better place. But it's pretty wild when you could go and have one of the most taxing educational experiences, one of the most highly regarded skills, and still have that mismatch with what is needed in the market. It's nuts. And unfortunately, I think that's happening more and more. Um and I think that disconnect is going to lead to something. And it was interesting to hear this woman talk about uh, how the virus has is causing a lot of strain on the profession. And so they're almost, you know, forced to have to change things up. So another, another interesting thing to watch would be that to see if that's truly what's, uh, what's happening. Yeah. I mean, um, so 
the yeah it'll be be fascinating to see what shakes out um it's definitely a um accelerant and i listen to a lot of different business podcasts and they're all like the coronavirus just accelerated market trends it accelerated market trends it accelerated so we don't really know what that impact is going to be but um i've got this text chain going with my buddies where one of my buddies taught is a mathematician. He works for United Health Group, um, whose stock went up 50 points uh, when Biden was elected. 30%. So 30% mm-hmm. uh, in a, a day, <laughs> which <laughs> is pretty Because they, they sit next to the president when the Affordable Care Act gets passed. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, who knows what accelerant it will show up in um the education space because it it really is you know that that path is just was already being eroded in terms of the school system to employment and and now it could look really drastically different and i'm excited for that and and the purpose of this text chain was this he was talking about this mathematician who everybody always like historians and economists they all are looking at the world in terms of how history repeats itself. So they're always looking for markers that signal like trends that have occurred in the past that foreshadow how the world is going to be like it was in the past. And you're going to history repeats itself. You've heard that all the time. Well, this, this book is essentially about like, that is an incorrect way to look at the world because great change is actually punctuated by these events that we cannot predict. And um, his whole point was like, the world is shaped by these radically unpredictable events. And so all of us looking at what has happened in the past and trying to guesstimate at what happens in the future, you're never going to be right because it's, it's less about predicting what's going to happen based on previous events and more about like these unpredictable punctuated events that spur massive change. And those are the, those are the places, those are the people who do a good job of being prepared for those shifts or being situated well for those shifts that like have massive success when these events occur. So people, what, what you're, what the theory is, I'm just trying to understand this is, you need to be either ready for these types of shifts or you need to uh, change and adjust with these shifts. What's the, what was the um, kind of I've proposed? Just, yeah, I've just ordered the book. So um, what's it called? Uh, let me just pull up my Amazon orders here. It's called the Black Swan. Oh yeah, yeah, Nassim the, Taleb. The impact of highly improbable. Yeah, so Nassim Taleb is a really, really popular um, art uh, book. He he's written some really awesome books, and that's yeah, the Black Swan. I've heard of that book actually. That's really cool. And I don't know if it has, uh, if it really talks about how you can be prepared for these events, take advantage of them. But I think it's more about like. The, like like the title says, the impact of the highly improbable as opposed to like the expected outcome. And I got to be honest, um, we, we were exchanging in this text group about how I think the world is, is so aggressively going in the direction of the highly improbable. I mean, the weather is a very straightforward example of like global destabilization of the climate. You have the moderating effects of the polar ice caps being diminished. So what we're going to experience is like extreme change just in Minnesota alone was 70 degrees on Sunday. It was 30 degrees on Monday and that happens in Minnesota, but that is one of the more severe changes. And if you just look at the weather patterns in Minnesota, we have had extremes. It's been, super warm and then super cold and you just don't have this kind of like gradual transition anymore and 
I mean, the destabilization of the political system from the internet is a really great example as well of people not being able to really predict based on previous events. It's more about the improbable. What's interesting is, so I think you look at, I'm going to bring this to the Tao Te Ching, and we as humans are very obsessed with order. And I think we're trying to stabilize things a lot, which means that chaos will naturally happen. But since we have made all of this order, chaos, I think, is going to be magnified. And I think you think of like uh, the impacts of order that we're putting in. So all of the climate of impacts of, you know, we're trying to build trains and all these things that are emitting gases because we're trying to control our environment so much that, you know, I think, and that's, that's, you know, for me, what I've noticed a lot of is this concept of entropy. We've talked about this before in the podcast, but the world is naturally a chaotic place and we just try like heck to make it unchaotic. Um, so I think that's kind of the human, one of the, one of the things we as humans are just going to always struggle with is this balance between chaos and order always will. Yep. And I think nowadays with the amount of, so what you've got is increasing control over your environment, right? Like nobody can deny that human beings have have gained more mastery of the physical world around us. Yep. Mm -hmm. So now that balance is going to be offset by the highly improbable, these chaotic events that write the scales, which remind us that we are indeed very much like passengers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, the, one of the things too, I was, I was reading about is the, like the wildfires, for example. So you look at the wildfires, uh, in California and they are becoming increasingly, you know, they're very devastating and wildfires is a natural occurrence. And we, as humans are trying to eliminate that, but you can't stop like a brush fire, you know, it, it, you can contain it, but then it will bite back because it's all this built up energy that you try to contain because you're like, oh, I don't want this to burn down, but it's like, there are a ton of sticks outside that are ready to burn that we're kind of containing them. So instead of them burning at more of a natural occurrence, they just kind of go crazy. And I'm not, that's not a scientific argument. I don't know that for sure, but that's just one of my, I've been reading a little bit about those fires and that's something I've found very interesting. Yeah. And I I don't know the science behind you know, the size of the fires relative to previous um, fires that have existed. But um, wildfires have a very important moderating impact on the environment. So Mm -hmm. if you have wildfires more frequently, um, they will be less severe because you will have burned a lot of the ground uh, like brush in previous cycles so that they're not at, but when you keep them at bay, you control them, then all of a sudden you have the extreme potential for these massive outbursts. And, um, you know, having people living in these areas where, you know, 30 years ago, they probably didn't live. It wasn't as big of a deal to have these massive fires going through or 200 years ago. Nobody cared because nobody was there. So now all of a sudden you're exerting all of this control over your environment. And it's really just like, light you know kind of storing all of your your gunpowder you know you're just shoveling all your gunpowder into one pot one pile instead of you know gradually blow you know blowing it up every so often and well it goes back to the argument of new orleans too that we talked about you know like building this city below sea level it's like well that's a battle (laughs) it's a questionable battle (laughs) Um, yeah. Do you know about the locks that they put into Venice? No. Oh my God. Venice uh, is obviously at huge risk of rising tides. And so, you know, 
one foot of a rising sea tide in Venice would be catastrophic because you've got literal floating and, you know, mm-hmm. houses that are on stilts, basically. So what they've done is they've put in these massive locks, like miles long, that try to, that open up and shield the city from the rising tide. So they literally are creating negative pressure and just holding off the ocean. And (laughs) that's, that's pretty crazy that their solution is like, okay, well, we're just going to build a wall against the water and raise up these barriers at periodic intervals to control the amount that the ocean is rising during, you know, like surges and, and high tide. And that's, that's, that's not sustainable. I mean, it's sustainable for how, however long, right? Like it's a temporary solution to the problem, ten, but 10 years. And what do you do the next 10 years? Just and, and, higher. and what happens to Venice when that thing, when that plan fails, because it will at some point and it's going to be catastrophic. <laughs> That's for sure. That's an engineering problem right there. When there's, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, I think there's a lot of other, uh, you know, U.S. like New York. Some of these other cities are going to be fighting that in the next ten to twenty years. And I think a Big lot time. of the government push is, you know, let's fight climate change, yada yada yada. It's like, you know, we can do that. We're already, de- you know, rolling down the hill, so we may have to make some better decisions regarding uh, city planning here pretty soon. <laughs> And maybe yeah. one of the things that is impacting, you think of the coronavirus, people are moving out of cities like New York and LA a lot. And I don't know, have any of the numbers in front of me, but I was reading an article the other day about how that's one of the, one of the big impacts is people are moving out of big cities. Well, yeah. That could yeah. help the, the family plan or the family plan, the uh, city planning. It could. And, you know, begs the question of like an accelerating effect. Here we go. So are people really going to need these office centers in overcrowded cities that are constraining the environment and, you know, they're exerting control, like putting up these lock systems to try and prevent these catastrophic events. So will the coronavirus help people kind of realize that I don't know the the need That's for stupid. our previous um, way of life exactly is 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 diminished and will there be a revolution in terms of and I think it'll be a moderately slow burn but um I think there'll be a lot of big uh big potential changes that will start to avail themselves to people making decisions and and I think the world you know, post-coronavirus could look very different. So I think that's one of the reasons that um, real estate on the coasts is going to start to become cheaper and real estate in your cities, in your suburbs that are, you know, not in these affected environments is just going to go up like crazy. And that's something we've seen in Minnesota. The real estate market is just on fire right now. Welcome to flyover country. Well, Texas is kind of blowing up too. Texas is blowing up. Another friend of mine, we were talking about uh, climate change. Okay, let's just say the temperatures get more extreme. Well, that means Minnesota's climate is going to be more like Kansas. So we're going to have longer summers and shorter winters. So he's like, that's not a bad, that wouldn't be a bad thing. So, you know, you don't know if that's actually what's going to happen, but. It will be, I think, I think you're right about the uh, real estate prices is a good way to predict it. Another thing I was reading about real estate is um, one of the professions they were saying that will be impacted by all this will be architecture because there's not going to be a need to throw up all these new buildings, big, huge buildings, which is where the architects make a lot of money. So the architecture will be more focused on building houses and smaller dwellings, not big, huge monstrosity like the new Dayton's building in in, in Minneapolis yeah I uh, yeah it'll be uh 
be a fascinating couple of years here. The, it'll be known as the post-corona era. For sure. This will be uh, this will be one of those black swing events, which I remember actually Nassim Tlaib, I follow him on Twitter. He said this isn't a, a black swing event earlier, and I think he's changed his tune. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, in other news, uh, speaking of, well, black swan events, we hope that, um, you know, we talked about the healthcare crisis or uh, United Health Group stock going up so much after Biden was elected. Um, want to share a kind of crazy sequence of events. So um, <clears throat> my wife is expecting, and there is a test called the NIPS test, which is non-invasive prenatal uh, test or prenatal screening and you test for a bunch of genetic disorders and it's a it's a chromosomal test so they just it's a, just a blood test from the mom and the test costs if you look at all of the um, data on their website um, other rates um, on their website they say the test costs out of pocket two hundred and fifty dollars so. Mm -hmm. We're looking at it and we have a very high deductible plan. It's very low premium on the every month. But um, so she was like, okay, great. You know, they say on the website that it costs 250 bucks. So we can certainly pay out of pocket for that. It's not that big of a deal. We call the insurance company and get a quote on how much the test will cost when they run it through insurance. And the blood draw will cost $3 and the test will cost $827 because the testing facility has a contracted rate with the insurance company for $827. And my wife was like, what the hell is that about? How did they say that the test costs $250 on their website, but the insurance company has contracted with them for $827? What, what are they doing? And I was kind of like, I know this game. I'm well familiar with it because I work in the industry. This is exactly how healthcare works. The insurance companies contract for these astronomical rates with the hospitals or the health systems or the testing departments. And that's nowhere near what these things cost. They're just stupid negotiated rates that they use to overinflate the price and then pass those. Um, and then they drop Savings. all that. They, will we they save pass you so much money as an organization. <laughs> Well, they say that or they pass on these um, astronomical price inflations to the consumer. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing about like going into a hospital, having the insurance company have an astronomical contracted rate. So instead of paying out of pocket, just paying the insurance, paying the hospital directly at what, a, you know, an actual direct to consumer cost would be. You got this astronomical price that's inflated from the negotiation with the insurance company. They jam some of their that total cost into a um, into uh, you know their their they jam this uh, this overinflated price through the system, pass on a massive portion of that overinflated price to the consumer from the copay and the deductible. And then they have these stupid adjustments on the back end that just say, oh, well, we're just going to adjust off 50% of the procedure because that's what we do. Well, the consumer is still getting hit with that first initial price. And it's like, what the hell is this? It's, it's, it's absolute robbery. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, that's a lot of what my work is actually doing today is educating people on what this actually means. And it's really complicated or it's not complicated. Actually, it's very simple. They make it sound like it's complicated. So you don't pay attention, but it's uh, it is basically very close to highway robbery in terms of how they do the adjustments and who, who wins, who loses, you know, and everybody's winning except for the, consumer you know yeah. the hospitals are winning the insurance companies are winning the employers are starting to lose because they are self-insured now so now they're having to pay out of pocket for these things but one of the things that always fascinates me is when you get into workers compensation there's a reason why these bills are you know they the time article that said 
you know, oh, it's uh, $12 for one pill of aspirin, you know, which is normally whatever it is, 10 cents. Um, what they do is they inflate these prices so that when a workers' compensation case comes in, they argue you should be paying the full amount. So when we were as a hospital, when a work comp case came in, you would be very happy that they would come in because instead of paying this weird contracted rate, you know, the contracted rate you just discussed where a lot, of, it's basically 50% is a good measure uh, for, for a uh, employer, employer insurance company, you would be paying a lot of money. So these workman's comp costs are adding up super quickly and that inflated rate then is also paid by, you know, somebody that has self-pay insurance. Somebody that doesn't have insurance would have to be, that's the starting point is a negotiation is that number. So like, for example, a knee surgery. Something like $50,000. So it's been uh, pretty wild to just uh, kind of learn all of this stuff. And I think the education for for people today needs to needs to change. So that's something something that's good to know. And it's crazy to kind of give it an example of uh, what you're doing with your kind of going through your situation right now. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. Um, I don't even know what to say about it, but uh, <laughs> that's that's the world we live in, you know. Oh, it it totally is. It totally is. And, you know, I think people are starting to starting to work on that one more. So now there'll be, hopefully there'll be strategies in place to figure that out, but we can't, again, we talked about education. Healthcare is another area where it's the costs are completely inflated. Um, I want to go back to that patient responsibility thing, because you and our brother were talking about how medical expenses don't impact your credit score if you don't pay them? Yeah, so certain states, you should check with the state. And I know Minnesota is one of them. It doesn't impact your credit score history. So let's just say you have a $40,000 bill outstanding from a hospital and you live in a state where it does not impact your credit. So just, you know, Google does credit score impact my or does, does a healthcare or a hospital bill impact my credit score in the state? And you can find it pretty, pretty easily. But if it doesn't, what you get is it won't impact your credit. And all you need to do is give them a, a fake phone number and get bugged a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But you but don't have to pay it. There's, there's really no ramification for not paying that bill. No, if it doesn't impact your credit. Nope. And that... I mean, credit is where it will impact your bill. So if it doesn't, and you, you know, certain states it does. So I, you know, make sure before you go and don't pay your bill. But uh, that's uh, it's a pretty important point. And if you don't have a lot of money, paying off your credit card before your hospital bill is probably a situation you should get into. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, I this uh, we're going to have to pay a twenty percent copay on a hospital bill for an inpatient birth and every day costs about $12,000. So, um, you know, the average length of stay is about two days. So, you know, we're expecting a $24,000 bill from the hospital. So pay 20%, you know, five grand or whatever. That's a lot of cash just to say, Sorry guys, thanks for your work. <laughs> you know, I'm not oh, going to pay. Man, I can't That's pay a lot that of money. Now. That's a lot of money just to be like, "Sorry guys, I appreciate the service." You know, obviously you want to like if they do a great job or whatever, you know, pay people for the work they do. You don't just want to stiff people. But when these loopholes exist, man, a lot of people get crushed simply by not understanding the rules. Yeah, and the good thing is it's, it's easily Googleable, so it's easy to find. So if you're if you're having to make some of these tougher financial decisions, especially now with the virus, you know you can put that off. One of the things that's a, a something that I 
would I actually, when I was talking to patients, I'd advocate for this is just find a dollar amount you can pay per month and set that up. You know, whether it's hundred bucks, $10, sometimes they have policies now. This was, you know, five years ago, but you know, just to be a little, think a little differently about paying off certain bills. Um, just something good to know. And with well, medical, medical costs being some of the biggest prices, that's a way you can be a little smarter on it. And I believe one of the COVID waivers that came across was that patients will not have to pay copays on COVID posi- positive um, events. I believe the insurance companies yes. have to take full responsibility for that. So there's zero copay for your service. So um, I, I'm not going to do this, but shoot, man, that baby comes out I don't know how, but suddenly my wife gets infected with COVID after she's fine with the birth. And then the hospital bill is zero for us. I mean, that's the difference between five, ten thousand dollars for some people and zero. It's and like all well, she needs is a COVID positive test. I'm sure we could fake one too, you know. <laughs> like well, one of the things too about that is hospital reimbursement is better. So they're incented to have COVID positive too. Oh yeah. I think there was a lot of discussion early on about the COVID rates being somewhat inflated because there was this presumptive COVID positive. And so then they would be getting paid the full amount by the insurance companies and the government, the government's backing a lot of this though. So, yeah. And so I, I guess we don't necessarily need to actually infect my wife. I just need to get an infected COVID positive test that is assigned to her chart. (laughs) And then and then it goes from being a pregnancy without complications to a pregnancy with complications, COVID positive. All of the the hospital is paid in full, zero copay to us. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. And I don't know if that is necessarily the case with you know with certain things, but that it's one avenue you could just kind of ask the question. You know, I'm gonna ask a stupid question. I'm gonna dig on that one because that's just an interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon. Obviously, I would never risk my wife's health to do that, you know, but uh, it's and obviously there's a high chance of contracting COVID if you go into the hospitals today. You know, I mean, they're cesspools right now Mm -hmm. in May probably won't be, you know, but um, just that you guys, I think that will be. It's better than in the next couple of months. I think that's what I'll say. I don't, you know, you, it's hard to predict the future with all this, but. Yeah. Um, you shared a really funny article about this gym where there was a trainer who exposed 50 people in a gym to um, COVID, but not a single person in the gym got it because they had a woman who was a, PhD world leading virologist specializing in aerosol spread of disease. So quite the a specialty, very specific <laughs> specialty to be at one of these CrossFit gyms. And the whole, the, it was hilarious reading the article because they were like, nobody got exposed. And basically what their message was is that they worked out with the windows open. I mean, they showed a picture it. of the, well, they, they, the two things they did were they had all of, so they have like those kind of uh, garage doors, you know, in some of these workout facilities. And then the windows were wide open. So they had like two garage doors and all the windows open. And they put 10 feet in between everybody instead of six feet. That was the, those are the two big things that they were arguing for. Which is a pretty low bar in terms of, you know, like what you got to do to pretty simple solution in my mind, pretty simple I remember, solution. I remember we were attending a wedding this summer on a, a boat and what, what uh, we were hearing the recommendation was, is to keep the windows open. Um, and, but people were cold, so they were shutting them. <laughs> so, and that wasn't a super spreader event to my knowledge. Not that we know of. No. And I'm sure we would have heard by now, but um, seems like some pretty, you know, these are definitely actionable items that you can take today to keeping, you know, yourself safe, your family safe. You think of Thanksgiving, some of these things. 
put a yeah. coat on, keep the windows open. And their um their the woman's message was like people are spending a hundred percent of their budget on disinfecting surfaces when you should be spending at least fifty percent of your time, and I would argue like eighty percent of your time focused on a aerosol-based spread prevention strategy, meaning just great ventilation. Yep. And you got people out there wiping down every surface and hand sanitizing. And sure, that probably helps. But um, there have been studies that say that COVID is almost 0% spread through surfaces. It's all aerosol-based. Yeah, and that's been kind of common knowledge, I think. Or not common knowledge, because, of course, that's not what what our today's media likes to spread. Um, <clears throat> but I think that's been pretty well known for the last, you know, four or five months is the mm-hmm. aerosol part of it. Yeah. So I guess wear the mask, you know. I don't know. <laughs> Keep uh, the windows open, wear the mask. Do you, and it, you know, do you, do you know uh, Anoke, or Oklahoma was getting some flack in the news this week because of their mask request. What was their mask request? Um, statewide mask request as opposed to a mask mandate. Mm. And a lot of the media was like, oh, this is so bad, blah, blah, blah. And I would want, here's my thing with that little word change, I bet their mask adherence is higher than a mask mandate. Exactly. Yep. Um, you give people think, the freedom to choose as opposed to a mandate, and all of a sudden you're not infringing on people's rights. I would bet a lot of my bank account on that one. Yep. So we need to go look that up. That would be something we could follow up on the next podcast, or one of our listeners could uh, could tweet at us or send us a message on. Because I think that's, you know, like these are these are really important things, and I think are. Some of the people in our government aren't really understanding how to do behavior change. They're pretty bad at it. <laughs> so yep. Some are good, but uh, I think the word mandate gets people a little frustrated. And you know, our uh, Minnesota was the the site of a lot of riots, and we had a pretty pretty aggressive mandate early on. So interesting to to take a peek at. Yeah, no kidding. Well, that's all we got for you today, folks. Tune in next week when we'll be back kicking it here in the Rumpus Room. 